Last week I was at a pastor's retreat in a conference center in Oregon. Our conference center had two lodges that were separated by a path of about 250 yards. This is a picture of the road that you had to walk between those two lodges, a little windy, and one route that you could take that would go the wrong direction. Here's a picture of that same road at 9 o'clock at night if you've gone out without your flashlight, because that is what I did. <laughs> I got halfway to Lodge B, and I realized I was stuck. Uh, I managed to feel my way to a lamppost. Let's show the lamppost. There it is. I found a lamppost, and I literally just held onto it because I, I didn't know where to go from there. I figured I was safe clutching the lamppost. Lamp it was inconveniently, by the way, not lit, which was not very helpful. So I literally stood there, and I was clinging to this post, and I didn't know what to do. I felt around with my foot down the one side, and I realized that it was a drop-off, and I didn't know how far it was going to drop off. I couldn't go back. I couldn't go forward. I could wait until someone showed up and feel like an idiot, but I didn't know how long that would be. So what would I do? What would you have done? What? Gone out with a flashlight in the first place. I, yeah, or cell phone. <laughs> well, I decided that I wasn't going to stand there clinging to the post, so, so this is what I did. I knelt down, and I felt the ground with my two hands in front of me, and I took one step forward. And then I felt the ground in front of me, and took one step forward, and felt the ground in front of me, and took one step forward. I did that for a hundred yards. I frog-walked my way all the way back to my lodge until I finally found some light. And I know that I looked like an idiot. I certainly felt like an idiot. But as hard as I looked, I could not see what was right in front of me. In this morning's Bible stories, we realize again that the Jewish people, and especially their leaders, these chosen people of God, who, who had prayed for centuries that a Messiah, a Savior, would come to them, we realize that they are so blind, they are so darkened, that they cannot see Him, even when they're looking right at him. We're continuing our journey through Luke's gospel, and today Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. I say finally because this journey began 10 chapters ago. 10 chapters ago we were told that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, and when we say Jerusalem, we're really talking about the temple. Because the temple was what made Jerusalem Jerusalem. The temple was the heartbeat of the city. But in Luke's gospel, it's been a long time since he was in Jerusalem. In fact, we, we see Jesus go to Jerusalem as a baby because he's taken there to be dedicated. We saw Jesus in the temple teaching, remember, and asking questions of the elders when he was 12 years old after his parents lost him on the way back from Passover. But that's not the last time he was in the temple. The last time was when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Do you remember after his baptism, Satan took him and tempted him in the wilderness. He tempted him. And one of the temptations was to take him to the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan urged him to jump off and to entrust himself to the care of the angels as a dramatic demonstration of his power. And of course, Jesus refused to be tempted that way. He refused to put God to the test. But that was the last time that Luke has us in Jerusalem, in the temple until this moment. Uh, and so we finally come back after three years, we come back and we discover that Jesus is about to pick up right where he left off. 
The last time he was there, he was doing battle with Satan, who wanted to derail his ministry before he even got it started, who wanted to steer him away from the cross. Well, Jesus is back this time, and he's ready to take him on yet again, and the gloves are off. So that's what we're going to see as we turn to our three stories, starting in Luke chapter 19. Would you turn with me to Luke 19, beginning with verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard for us to read that knowing what's going on in Israel even this moment, isn't it? When I lead tours to Israel, and I will do it again, we enter Jerusalem from the east, from the Mount of Olives. This is the view that you have of the city when you stand there. It's breathtaking. That's the Temple Mount there. The Dome of the Rock sits where the, holy, where the temple of God used to sit. But we start there looking at that, and then we begin walking down that hill on a path that's, that's it's the, it's the path, it's the Palm Sunday walkway. This is the same path that Jesus took when he started there and walked down and up into Jerusalem to start uh, Holy Week. Halfway down that pathway on the right-hand side, we come to this church. It's called the Church of Dominus Flevit, which is Latin for G Lord, the Lord wept. Uh, it is shaped, it's said to be shaped in the shape of a teardrop, symbolic of what is traditionally believed to have taken place on this site. For it is here that tradition says Jesus stopped and he looked out over the city and he wept. The word, though, that is used for weeping here is not adequate. It really is sobbed. It, it means convulsive cries. The only other time we are recorded as having heard that Jesus wept was over his dead friend Lazarus. Remember? His dead friend Lazarus. Now Jesus weeps over a city that's going to die soon. Why was he so emotional over a, a bunch of rocks over a city? I think that the last line is what gives us the clue. Jesus closes this lament over Jerusalem when he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is brokenhearted, not over a city, but over the people who comprise the city, who do not know him. His own people who do not recognize him. They do not love him. They have not received him. When Jesus sobbed over Jerusalem, he was sobbing over a people, generations after generation, who despite what God had done for them, have continued to reject him. God delivered them from the captivity in Egypt. God led them to a promised land that was filled with milk and honey. God blessed them with every blessing. They still rejected him. God sent prophets to warn them. They killed them. And now... God had come to them in person. That's who Jesus was, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. God visited them and demonstrated His power, His person to him, to them in miracles like the world had never seen, in teaching like the world had never heard before, and still they rejected Him. 
All he had done, all the love he had poured out on them, the humiliation of the Creator becoming like a created one, none of it won the hearts of the people. And Jesus sobbed over that. He sobbed because of his rejection. He sobbed because he knew that what their rebellion was going to result in. Jesus prophesied something that is going to happen 40 years later. For in 70 AD, exactly what Jesus said took place, took place. The Romans, who were fed up with the rebellion of the Jews, they, they, they surrounded the city in siege, they laid waste to Jerusalem, they slaughtered its inhabitants, and they burned the temple of Yahweh to the ground. They destroyed it utterly. In fact, as Jesus said, there's not a single stone of the temple that remains today. It's all gone. All of this because when God sent a Messiah to save His people, not only did they not recognize Him or welcome Him, they rejected Him. And ultimately, they killed Him. And that is why Jesus wept on that hill looking over the city. Last week, I spoke to a pastor in our presbytery. I love this guy. He has a great heart. He and his wife have seven children, three of them adopted. And those three were all adopted out of the worst possible circumstances. And sadly, my friend told me as we stood there making breakfast together, he reported that he had just gotten a phone call that his 14-year-old adopted daughter, the eldest, had run away for the 10th time. The 10th time. They love her. They saved her from a horrific situation. They have sacrificed for her. They would do anything they could to protect her. And she utterly rejects their love. Can you imagine the pain? And that is the pain that caused Jesus to sob that day on the Mount of Olives. Rejected by his people, rejected by his own creation, and to this very day he is still rejected by the chosen people and by billions of people within this world. A world is full of lost people who need finding and need saving, but they are blind to who Jesus is and to his love for them and what he has done to save them. I am sure there are some here this day who fall in that category. Perhaps you appear to be very religious. Perhaps you come faithfully to church every Sunday. But you honestly still do not recognize how desperate is your need and how great is God's love for you. You still refuse to welcome Jesus. You still hold Him at a distance. Even though He has visited you by His Spirit, visited you through God's Word and worship every Sunday, you still hold Him at a distance. And He still weeps over your rejection of Him. Will you ever turn your heart to Christ? Will you, who hold Jesus like this, will you ever turn your heart to Christ? Let's continue with the readings. Verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Take note of that. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. One year we vacationed in southern Utah near where Cindy's family lives, and we decided to drive to Hoover Dam. 
And on the way, we stopped in Las Vegas. We had never been there. We thought we'd walk the strip and just check it out. It was my wife, Cindy, and my teenage son, Cooper, and myself. And it was sleazy. You couldn't walk 10 feet without someone handing you a card with a picture of a naked woman and a phone number. And it was quite a shock, especially for a 13-year-old boy who had never seen anything quite like this. But what I remember most is the transformation that came over my little wife. For suddenly, she wasn't walking beside us. Cindy was walking in front of us on a mission. She was like the prow of an icebreaker crashing through the flows. She plowed through that crowd. She was making a safe path for her men. She was protecting us. She grabbed those cards that were being proffered to us and she would throw them to the ground and kept pushing forward, clearing a path through the sleaze. I have never seen such fearsome determination before. It was awesome and honestly, a little terrifying. The temple sat within a complex of courtyards. Take a look, and you'll see the biggest courtyard on the, around the outside. That was the courtyard of the Gentiles. This was the place where anyone who wanted to draw near to Yahweh could. Even the non-Jews, you, you, you had to have the Jewish card to, to move on to the inner courtyards there. But that outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentile, that was open to everyone. And it was a reminder that God loved the whole world. And that He had called His chosen people not because they were special, but because they had a mission to the rest of the world, to bless the rest of the world. So that was what the courtyard was supposed to be for. But now the courtyard had been turned into a shopping mall. It is hard to imagine what big business the temple had become. In one year, it was counted, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed in the temple. One year. That's just the lambs. That's not the butt doves. That's not the, the beef cattle. That's just the lambs. Every single day, on average, they slaughtered 700 lambs. But it couldn't be just any old lamb. You came in from Nazareth with your lamb to sacrifice? Oh, no, no. It had to be inspected. And if they found anything wrong, the temple authorities, anything wrong with your lamb, well, you're going to have to set that lamb aside. You're not going to be able to sacrifice that in our temple. But we can sell you a lamb for a price. And that's exactly what they did. They, it was a racket. It was a trap for every pilgrim who came. They had no choice if they were going to make sacrifice to God. And it was here in this court of the Gentiles that all of that selling and all of that buying took place. This place of prayer had been turned into a rip-off joint. It would be like charging admission at the door before you can come in and worship. And, and even worse, these shops were crowding out the people who had come often from hundreds of miles away to worship the one true God especially the Gentiles who had no other place in which they were allowed. And Jesus is outraged. There is no other way to describe Him. It is not the picture most of us have of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There is nothing meek or mild about this Jesus. He is furious and He is courageous. And single-handedly He clears out the profiteers. And then, and this I find even more amazing, then he teaches. 
I mean, it's not like he comes in and, and clears everything out and then makes his escape. No, no, he clears it out. He cleanses the temple, and then he stands right in the middle of it, and he begins to teach. And he teaches day after day after day. Daily, we are told, he was surrounded by his enemies, surrounded by those who were enraged at him, surrounded by these profiteers whose business had been disrupted, but he didn't care. He was there, and the enemies couldn't do a thing to him because we are told the people were hanging on his every word. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of their rejection of him. Jesus goes postal on the profiteers in the temple because of their obstruction of him. These religious leaders who should have made the way for everyone to come and know God, including the Gentiles, the priests and the elders who should have cleared a path for God as Cindy cleared the path on the strip. Instead, they blocked the way for their own benefit, their own purposes, their own preferences, their own profit. I spoke recently with a retired pastor who visited an EPC church near where they settled down in retirement. They were eager to plug in, and they attended it. But he told me when they got there, they were the rudest, coldest people he had ever met. The men gathered after church in a closed circle for coffee, and he was neither welcome nor acknowledged. There was no nursery because they didn't want the noise and mess of children disrupting their church. God, help us when we don't have noisy children in this church. I can't help but believe. I can't help but believe. I can't help but believe that if Jesus walked into that church today, he would open up a can of you-know-what on them because they are obstructing people from meeting God. And there are churches across this land who are more interested in their comfort, in their preferences, in their traditions than they are in making a way for the unsaved stranger to find a way to God. This is not that kind of a church. This will never be that kind of a church we will always have room in our circle. There will always be cribs in our nursery and a place in our pew for the wanderer who comes looking for God. We will not be those who obstruct seekers from discovering Jesus Christ. Am I right? Amen. And so the, the blinded people of Israel reject Jesus and they obstruct Jesus. And now... They try to demote Jesus. Listen to the last reading from chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, teaching and preaching, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another. That means literally pulled aside into a circle and went like this. They discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death before they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Mic drop. <laughs> the great mic drop of the New Testament. Neither will I tell you. 
couple of weeks ago, we hosted a Matt Marr concert. How many of you were there for that? Yeah, it was awesome. I had the privilege of opening the concert with a welcome and a prayer. And so I snuck into the building through the back and made my way up through. And I walked over to the side door of that room there to get my instructions. When I entered, I surprised two production guys who were there and who, it's clear, were irritated that I had walked into the room. And so they began to question me. Who was I? What was I doing there? I couldn't help but smile. And part of me wanted to say, Ooh, I'm Matt's biggest fan. I'm just hoping he might sign my t-shirt for me. <laughs> but I behaved myself and told him I was the pastor of the church and it was all cool. After Jesus had the audacity to cleanse the temple and begin his teaching, the leaders came up to him and said, Who are you? What are you doing here? And what right do you have? Who gives you the right? They said, tell us by what authority you do these things, and who is it that gave you this authority? The word authority is really important, especially in Luke and Mark. It's a, one of their favorite words. The Greek word is exousia. Say it with me. Exousia. Say it again. Exousia. You know agape, now you know two Greek words. You've doubled your, your Greek vocabulary. It is a word that's frequently used and, and about Jesus because the people found his exousia, his authority, captivating and unusual. When a typical rabbi taught in the day, he would quote a rabbi who had come before him. And that rabbi would quote a rabbi who had come before him. And that rabbi would quote a rabbi who had come before him. And on and on and on it went back, always about precedent, always about precedent. But Jesus had the audacity to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That was exousia. When Jesus told a paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven. And then, oh, by the way, healed his legs. That was exousia. When demonic forces were subdued and cast out by a single word by Jesus, that was exousia. No one had ever spoken or acted with the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. No one. And so the head honchos come to him and they ask him, who do you think you are? And Jesus did what he often did. He answered a question with a question. He said, tell me, John the Baptist, was that a ministry from God or did he just make that stuff up? Because that's what he was really asking. Was that God's authority or did he just make that stuff up? And the elders suddenly find the trap closing in on them. Because if they say that John was acting under his own authority, the people are going to kill him. They're afraid they're going to kill him because they revered John as the true prophet of God. But if they said that he was acting under God's authority, well, they're in trouble that way too. Because, and you need to get this, because John baptized Jesus. John declared Jesus to be the Messiah. When Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and for good measure, God spoke from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. If the elders admitted that John's ministry was God-ordained, then they would also be affirming the ministry of Jesus. Because John said that Jesus was the guy. And God said that Jesus was the guy. And they were utterly trapped. This is about the Lordship of Christ right here. This is about the Lordship of Jesus Christ the religious leaders reject Jesus, they obstruct Jesus, and now they're trying to demote Jesus. 
Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, who God the Father has proclaimed him to be, that means they must obey him. They must follow him. They must align their lives and their teachings and their traditions to what Jesus says. And they cannot bring themselves to do that because they do not want to give up their power. I believe this is the single greatest reason that people reject Jesus. Because if they acknowledge him to be who he is, Lord of all, it means they can't call their own shots anymore. Lots of people, I think, like the idea of Jesus as the Savior. We all want to be forgiven. We would all love to be set free from our guilt and our shame. We're, we're good with that. But we would rather take a pass, if we could, on this whole lordship thing. We'd, we'd prefer to still be in charge of our own lives. In fact, I've heard people say, well, Jesus is my Savior, but I haven't really made him Lord of my life yet. They are trying to demote Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's not like choosing from a Chinese menu. You can't have one of these, but not one of these. Savior and Lord, it's a package deal. You don't get a Savior without the Lord. They go together. Jesus is Lord. He has all authority. And that drives our culture crazy because he claims authority over everything that is crazy in this culture of ours. It is Jesus who has the authority to tell us how we should live. It is Jesus who has the authority to tell us how we ought to spend our money or how we should behave, not us. It is Jesus, the Creator and Lord, who has the authority to define sexuality and gender, not us. It is Jesus, the Creator and Lord, who has the authority to declare that a society should protect its innocent and punish lawmakers, not us. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is Lord. That is the ancient creed of the Christian church. Those three words sum up the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. It is the ancient creed. It is the oldest creed. Those three words. These three defiant words have been the death sentence from martyrs down through the ages who refused to demote Jesus from his rightful throne. Jesus is Lord. Lord, that is the heartbeat question of this and the whole of the New Testament. Is Jesus Christ your Lord or not? In every way, over everything, is Jesus your Lord, yes or no? And so as you always do, Holy Spirit, you meet us in your word and the power of your word you confront us with our sin, our rebellion, our fear. And so we lay what we have learned about you and what it stirs in us. We lay that before you this day. I know there are some here who have not known your visitation. They have not acknowledged that you, the Savior, have come to them by your Spirit, that you are appealing to them to receive you and be saved and set free. They don't know that. They haven't received that. They hold you at arm's length. They are rejecting you. Would you speak to the heart of the person who's stubbornly holding you at a distance, who weeps over them? Would you speak to that person right now and convince them to receive you as the great gift that you are? There are some here who believe in you, but who are so stubborn in their ways or, or set in 
what the way that they worship, that they become an obstruction to others, the way they live, the way they speak. No one can hardly believe that they're followers of Christ, and they end up obstructing those who would want to come to you from making it to you. Would you speak to that person? And there are perhaps many this day who they like the idea of being saved. We like the idea of being forgiven. But we don't like the idea of relinquishing control of our life. But nothing less than that is possible. Nothing less than that will do. For you are only our Savior if you are our Lord. Lord and Savior. It's a package deal. And so for those of us who want to be saved, want all the perks, but don't want to obey you, would you speak to us this day? Holy Spirit, meet us as we need to be met. Convict us in the things we need to be convicted of. Call us to repentance. Call us to faith that we might be able to declare with all sincerity, Jesus is Do you
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Let me tell you how this preaching thing is supposed to work. Um, we pastors engage with the text. We prayerfully work our way through. We write something that we think God's people need to hear. We come and we lay it down as an offering before the Lord and before you. Then that Holy Spirit we just sang about takes over and begins to do the work that he needs to do in your lives. So when you're listening to a message and you feel like something like this in your side, that might be the Holy Spirit saying, that's your thing. That's what I want you to focus on. So where did you feel that elbow in the ribs today? Was it the, the fact that you're holding Jesus at arm's length? He's weeping over you because he longs you to receive him, to, to believe him, to welcome him, and you're still holding him at arm's length. Is that you? Or, or was it that moment when 
when you heard about how people can obstruct people, others from coming to Christ by the way they lead, lead, lead their lives, by, the, by their inhospitality, by their, by their stubbornness? Was that you? Or when you heard talk of the Lordship of Christ, did you have to admit that I love the salvation part, but I'm not that keen on relinquishing control of my life. Was that where the Spirit was saying it doesn't work that way? It doesn't work that way. So pay attention. That's what we do every week. We listen and let the Holy Spirit shape us by God's Word. Pay attention to that. See what the Lord would do. Following the service, there will be people that are going to be praying over there in the prayer chapel. They would love to pray with you. If you have anything that the Lord has stirred in you, make your way over there. Meantime, we're going to beg the Holy Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do. Fill us and change us, so raise your hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's great people said, Amen.